will be reading First uh, John 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Oftentimes, when a speaker gets up, or pastors do this a lot too, especially after an awesome time singing together where God's joy truly was in our singing, the pastor would want to get up and make sure he keeps the energy in the room and say, how y'all doing, you know, and like <laughs> make you like feel obligated to respond and to respond with some energy and happiness in that. You might especially be tempted to do that if your passage was this passage on one verse where you're talking about joy. I'm going to do the opposite. There's a lot of sorrow in our world. A lot of pain. You can look around, you can find it everywhere. All over the place, it's obvious that things aren't right. And our world is like the world John writes to in the scripture. We learn that this group of believers that he writes to is a, a group that has experienced significant splits within their midst, so people they knew and loved and had even at some point confessed to the Christ and had walked alongside them in life, had departed from them and started claiming something else. We learn that it, that people that was left there was shaken, that they had doubts and concerns and questions, and they needed an aged pastor, an aged apostle to come alongside them and encourage their souls so that they could keep going. And in the middle of that, John writes them this great letter, and he writes to them for the purpose that he says in verse 4 that they might have joy. John, under the Spirit's inspiration, as he's carried along by the Spirit, wrote what he wants for them in line with what God wants for them and for all readers of this in the gospel. That is that God wants our joy. God provides for our joy. God holds out to us joy in the gospel. That God wants this, provides for it, holds it out for us, points us to his greatness. Displayed in these words, then, is the greatness of God. So with deep love and pastoral affection for this group of believers, John states his purpose. We had some immediate purpose that he wrote in verse 3, that they would have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Perhaps this is another immediate purpose, but also an ultimate purpose for his writing. Verse 4, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In verses 1 and 2, John gives this eyewitness account, unique eyewitness account of the real Jesus in order to sustain and maintain the fellowship that he has with these believers and to say that this is the right fellowship, that if you have fellowship with us, if you believe these things and have these things along with us, then, then you do have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is the right one because it's with the Father and with his Son. And to a group of believers that had experienced a significant fracture and split, this content of the actual Jesus, that he is really the word of life, that he was heard, seen, touched, was of vital importance and crucial to relay. But the knowledge of Jesus as the word of life and eternal life 
wasn't only to fill their minds and ease their brains. It was to stir their hearts. John is not content merely to just relate to them some information. To get them the right data that they need about this Jesus who we call the word of life. He's not after some sort of cold orthodoxy where you're kind of believing the right things and just going about it in a robotic fashion. He wants hearts that are altered, that are changed. He doesn't want to leave those hearts unaltered. And so his desire here is for complete and perfect joy. He wants hearts that are stoked by the word of life, by the reality of Jesus. So he writes for their joy. Now, there's tons of people say about joy, right? Joy is uh, choice and happiness is whatever. I, I don't know. There's all sorts of things of definitions about what joy is or isn't. The delineation like that between joy and happiness, you won't find that in the Scripture. I'm not saying it's wicked and evil, but you're just not going to go there if you're going to look for joy and the difference between joy and happiness in the Bible. Be careful because they are synonyms. So joy, what is it, is a question that's, that's answered in a lot of ways. But it is the experience of gladness beyond some sort of emotional high in a mood. It's a spiritual satisfaction, a deep and durable delight. That's joy. And the biblical description of joy makes it clear that joy, according to the scripture, is not circumstantial. It's not dictated by the things of the world or in the world, not completely. And John writes for joy, saying that he writes that our joy may be complete. Now there's a distinction. You might even have a footnote that says some translation, some manuscripts say your joy and not our joy. It's actually split down the middle. We don't really know which one is the, the most weighty in terms of manuscript evidence. It could be your, could be our. Either way, here's what's going on here. John is including his audience in on this joy, and I think our is a good way to take it. He is including himself in along with his audience on this, but it shows of John that his joy is also in their joy. He wants our joy. One author says it this way, that he has the heart of a pastor which cannot be completely happy so long as some of those for whom he feels responsible are not experiencing the full blessings of the gospel. Those are the kind of people you want watching over your souls. So John's pastoral heart is, is on display here as he writes, I think, our joy, that his joy is wrapped up in their joy. He wants their joy. He wants our joy. He wants it all together. But John's pastoral heart for this group of believers is nothing new. It shouldn't be profound at all. Rather, it's a reflection of the heart of his pastor. It's a reflection of the heart of God. God wants our joy. In Nehemiah, we just finished this, 8, they read the law, it confronted them with their sin as the mirror of the law was held up in front of sinful people, and they're mourning and they're weeping, and he says, stop it. Rejoice, be glad, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He commands them, they are commanded through the, through the priest, like, you're going to stop this. God wants you to rejoice. Or we could think of Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. And what kind of shepherd is this? This is a shepherd who restores our souls, who leads us to green pastures and still waters, who even through the valley of the shadow of death, his, his rod and his staff, they comfort us, that he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil, our cup overflows, and goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. That's the kind of God we have. Or Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. We could go to the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4, a few different places, but 4, verse 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll even say it again for you, rejoice. Old Testament, New Testament, we could have gone all over the place, and here's what we know about joy. It's commanded. And these commands display the heart and will and desire of God. God wants our joy. Think of the goodness of a God who would command not just some of the elite people, the super spiritual people, but all of his people to rejoice, 
to be glad, to be deeply satisfied in him. He says, rejoice and be glad. This is one of the reasons why one pastor said that the greatest, the most gracious command in the scripture is behold your God. This is our God. The God we're to behold is a God who is honored by our tasting and seeing that he's good. We don't make him good. We're just invited to taste him, and he's already good, and we get to enjoy it. That's what the invitation is from our God. We get to behold this God who desires that the nations be glad and that they sing for joy. His desire, he wants from the nations their gladness, their joy. They're actually even reflecting it in how they sing and respond to him. The God we're to behold is a God who commands us. Commands. What kind of command is this? To rejoice always. He wants joy in us all the time. That's the kind of God we get to behold. God wants the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts to stay. He wants it to stay. God did not make us. God did not make you to be miserable. God wants our joy. He commands our joy. That's why in the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, it'd be strange if you didn't know this about God to read the Psalms. And you see the Psalms that say something about God, and then they just start singing. They just start breaking forth in song. You're like, well, that's weird, unless, unless that's exactly what God has made us for. To really see him and to respond to him in joy and delight. He wants that. That's what he desires. So church, when we get to open up the scripture and we say, behold your God. It's the most gracious command we have. Now, likely when John says that he wants our joy, when he wants joy, it probably takes him back. I, I bet it would be hard for John to write that word joy without tears in his eyes, maybe his hand trembling a little bit as he thinks back to how he was taught about joy. When he heard with his own ears from the lips of his Savior, Jesus, teach. And Jesus did what John is doing here. In, in these first four verses, John's kind of, he's kind of rallying the troops. He's bringing them in. He's saying, hey guys, listen, this is Jesus and I want you to have joy. Jesus did something similar. Hours before his death, he gathers his disciples. He gets them in. He pulls them in close and he carefully instructs them that they might have joy. As John carefully instructs these first four verses that they might have joy, Jesus draws in his disciples that they might have joy. In John chapter 15, he says, I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He's been telling him, John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And because I'm going, I'm going to make sure that I come back and take you to be with me where I am. And then 15, he's like, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, you're going to bear fruit, abide in my love. And this is what I want for you. I want my joy to be in you and that joy for you to be full. In chapter 16, he warns them about what's to take place because they can't wrap their minds around it. He says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're going to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's speaking of his death. And he says, You will be sorrowful, sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing but in my name, but ask and you receive that, what? That your joy may be full. Jesus wants their joy. He's working for their joy. In chapter 17, he prays for their joy. This is this high priestly prayer in verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you that these things I speak in the world, that they, that may, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In other words, right before he's getting ready to go through crucifixion and these disciples are going to experience this onslaught of sorrow, he wants them to know, I'm in this thing for your joy. That's what I want. That's what we're going to get out of this. He deeply cares about his disciples' full joy. He taught them about it and he prayed for them to have it. He wants it for us. And that night for John and those disciples, it was full of sorrow. 
and it was full of anguish. But for John, that night of sorrow gave way to joy, a kind of joy that never gave way for John again. And it's that kind of joy that John wants his readers to have and that he assumes that they can have. I mean, it's implied that this is for them. It's not just for the apostles. It's for them. And he can, they can have it right then, which matters to a, a group of people that are afflicted or that are facing turmoil from major splits or have doubts and concerns that John says, you can have this joy right now. That's why I'm writing. Jesus did the same thing for me right before I was getting to go through a ton of sorrow. He did that for me. John's not writing uh, in, in a naive fashion. He knows what's going on. Remember, he says, John chapter 5, verse 19, this whole world's under the power of the evil one. He, that hasn't been suspended. He says, you're going to have joy. We're going to suspend this under the power of the evil one thing. No, he knows that it's under the power of the evil and he still writes for their joy. He knows that it's the last hour. So he says in 1 John 2, 18, we know it's the last hour, and guess what's coming at the last hour? Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists, they've already come. He knows that. He knows that within his midst, the people that he's writing to are sinners. He says in chapter 1, verse 8, hey, if anyone still sins, because you do, like we know if you're, if you're going to sin, like you're, because you, you, if you think you don't sin, you're deceiving yourselves. The truth's not in you because you do sin. He knows that's still going on. He knows there's sin in the community. In chapter 5, verse 16, he's going to talk about this sin that doesn't lead to death. And we'll try to figure that out, what that is. Sin not leading to death, right? But it's, in other words, there's sin within the community. There's doubts. In chapter 5, verse 13, he writes that they might believe in the Son of God and that by believing him, I have this this assurance that they might know that they have eternal life. He says, as we know, several times throughout the world, because they have all these doubts. He knows all those things are true. He knows there's pain from their split. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says there are people that went out of us because they weren't from us. They weren't of us. If they were, they would have continued. He knows, chapter 2, verse 15, that there's this temptation for all these people to love the world and the things of the world. He knows all of that is still true, and he says, yet I'm writing for your joy. Right in the midst of that. Not like we're going to wait for this fullness of joy when all that stuff ends. Writing for your joy now. And it's not just for the elite. It's it's for you who would receive the word of life. It's for you. Now, John's testimony as an apostle, as an eyewitness, some of the things he said in verses 1 and 2, those are unique things. They can't share in those things with him. But the joy that he speaks of here is something they can. And he assumes that they can join in it with him. Joy is not reserved for him as an apostle. It is for believers. It's for us. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, when we look back to the beginning, they had it. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in this garden, and everything's good. And there's rejoicing there. There's joy there. Right? God literally blessed them. And so there they are in this place of perfection under the blessing of God. There's rejoicing there. They're, they're looking around at the things God has created, the trees and the animals and everything that's going on. And it's good. It's good to them. It's a delight to their eyes. They're seeing all the good creation of God. They're able to even walk with God in the cool of the day. Things are good. God declared them good, and they're realizing them as good. When Eve is made and brought to Adam, what does he do? He rejoices. He bursts out into poetry and song like he's rejoicing in God. But if many of you probably don't have a record player or have ever heard of one, but if you remember record player, like they go around and around, and you have this little needle that's on there, and everything is good. The music is playing in creation, and Adam and Eve, and with the Lord, everything is good. The music is playing well, and then all of a sudden you hear this real big scratch, you know, like that. I heard that a lot because that's how I took the needle off. It's just like right across the record. <laughs> Didn't know. All right? That's the sound you hear when the snake slithers into the garden and they eat food that they were told, commanded by their good God not to eat. And the reality that brought in is something we're still in. One pastor said that there is not happiness finally. There is no peace. There is no joy except we be right with God. And guess what sin does? It makes us not right with God. Sin broke right relationship and fellowship with God. It tore joy apart. And now we're all in this state. Remember chapter 1, verse 8? If you think you don't sin, then you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. 
There's sin. And because there's sin, there's brokenness in relationship that we are made to have with God. And so there is no ultimate joy because we're not right with God because of our sin. But John doesn't leave us without hope. John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. After that dark night where Jesus took his disciples aside and he spoke to them of joy, what does he do? He lays down his life. Chapter 3, verse 16 speaks of Jesus laying down his life. Out of love, Jesus gives himself up as a sacrifice for sins. By his own blood sacrifice, he turns away God's wrath upon sinners. Jesus' propitiation then makes right relationship, fellowship available. It's restored in Christ for those who have been under the fall. That is all of us, for those who are sinners. And if you think you haven't sinned, then you're lying. You are a sinner. And now we have this restored fellowship available to us through the sacrifice that Jesus has made. He laid down his life in order for this to happen. He died in order to restore this broken fellowship with God, which is vital because that is where joy comes from. In other words, we could say, as we're looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that that verses 1 through 4, they go together. They flow together. The the joy of verse 4 springs from and is rooted in the fellowship with God that we read about in verse 3. Verse 3's fellowship with God flows into this joy of verse 4. So John's proclamation of verses 1 through 3 of this real Jesus, of the one that he had heard with his ears, that he had seen with his eyes and looked upon and touched with his own hands, that word of life, that knowledge that that is reality is vital because Jesus, that word of life, restores fellowship, which is the source of joy. So verse 1 through 3 or verse 3's fellowship flows into verse 4's joy. You remember in the garden, Adam and Eve are there. They, they wanted joy. They were made for joy. They're looking around under the blessing of God, and they're enjoying it. Things are good. But the temptation comes. The tempter comes slithering into the garden. And what does he do? He knows how they're made in some regard because he tempts them with something that is good for food and a delight to the eyes. Those are joy words. Those are pleasure words. He's tempting them with pleasure, with joy. And so they sought joy in a source outside of the joy they were meant to seek it from. They're meant to seek it from one source. And Satan says, here's another source of joy. And they take it. And we're like that. Under the fall, that's what we're like. We're still hardwired for joy, but now we seek it in all sorts of places. We are joy seekers, but we seek it all over the place. Think of even the language in our culture about this. We talk of job satisfaction, marital bliss, a happy home, religious fulfillment, physical pleasure, sexual pleasure. We are joy seekers. It's it's permeating our culture because we're hardwired for joy. And so we seek after it. But the scripture is really clear that if we're going to seek that joy outside of God, outside of relationship and right relationship with God, we're going to be like what Jeremiah describes in Jeremiah chapter 2. Forsaking living water in order to have some water that's out of these broken cisterns. We forsake the fountain of fresh, clean water for a muddy pool. For trying to get down on our knees and suck some muddy water out of a hoof print when we have a fountain that's offered to us. And there's a good reason why God says no to all sorts of things. Like no to idolatry and no to seeking joy in created things. There's good and beautiful reason for it, because joy can't be found there. 
The created things, your job, your relationships, your marriage, your home, your physical pleasure, those things were not designed, created, made to bring you the joy that God made you to have. They were made to point you to the one who could give you that joy. You were not made, designed by God to have joy in created things. In our fallenness, we want to take created things and we want to put them in a place that they're not supposed to be in. And we try to worship and serve them. Might be ourselves, might be our job, might be some relationships, and they will not give us the joy that we seek from them. They cannot hold up underneath that kind of pressure. So pursuits of joy in a job, in relationships, in wherever we seek them, are not going to be ultimately satisfying. And I would just ask you, if you're seeking joy in that, haven't you already recognized that? How satisfying are your pursuits outside of God? Are they really that good? I mean, I think we could just, we could do a case study on just advertisements in themselves and just say, these guys are onto something. And what they're onto is that you're not satisfied. It's that simple. They know it. We're not satisfied in those things. We're not made to be satisfied in those things. And actually, I think if we're going to pursue our joy outside of God, I think that we recognize this too, that that actually leaves us more exhausted and probably more depleted of joy than we were in the beginning. Yes, we might receive some temporary joy in those things, no doubt. God even designed them to give us some joy, but they are not the source of joy. Those are broken cisterns. They were not made to give us joy. I think that when we pursue joy outside of the source of joy, it's obvious that it's not working. Or we could listen to one sage in the scripture who tells us such. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's a real great book if you want to go and receive a lot of joy. <laughs> Here's what he says. I said in my heart, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Man, let's just live it up. See how that goes. This also is vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how, how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And I made great works. I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained in those things under the sun. Did you find your choice of joy in there somewhere? Likely for most of it, it hit some category for us. And here's what he says. I've been there. I've done that. It's a waste of your time. It will not satisfy you. Don't go that direction. And here's what I think is gracious of God. I think it happened here too. In love, God graciously frustrates the desires to find joy outside of him. He frustrates the joy from other sources because he knows it's vanity. It's chasing after wind. That's, that's a broken cistern. You're not going to find it there. And so he frustrates it. And hopefully he does it enough to break us from it. God is no Grinch who wants to steal Christmas and all the fun and singing and noise that goes along with it. It's not like our God. He doesn't want to steal our fun, keep us from what we actually want and desire. Because what we truly want and what He knows is that our hearts are restless until they find rest in Him. He's not trying to spoil our fun. He's trying to give us the best fun. He's not trying to keep you from what you want. What you want isn't good enough. He wants to give you what you actually want, what your heart and is longing for but doesn't know to find in things that, created, that he created. Instead, he's trying to turn you from broken cisterns to himself. 
Jesus rescues us from this restlessness in our hearts. Unlike the serpent who comes in and offers some sort of temporary joy, Jesus comes in and offers himself. And he did this that we might know God, be made right with God, and stop settling for broken cisterns when living water is being poured out that we might drink of it in full. He's trying to get us to stop settling for temporary joy when fullness of joy is available to us now. Are you lacking joy? Not is it completely absent, but maybe that's a question too, but, but is joy just kind of present, but man, couldn't it grow? And the first place that we need to turn to work on joy is not to manipulate or change or, or mess with our circumstances first. There might be some circumstantial things that need to change and be altered, sure. There's all sorts of stuff that we might need to talk about when we're talking about joy in your life, but the first place that we need to talk about, the priority is that we need to look at not our circumstances, but relationship with God. John knew misery in his circumstances. Don't think that night when Jesus told him about all this joy and then he prayed for them that he didn't feel some misery as Jesus was crucified brutally in front of his eyes, then put in a tomb and a rock was rolled over it? I think he was miserable. And he knows a little bit about misery and darkness as he speaks about joy. Do you think John, when he was arrested and persecuted in the book of Acts, knew a little bit about tough circumstances? Now, he knows what he's talking about. He knows misery. He knows darkness. And yet, after the resurrection, he could be beaten and still rejoice. Because the circumstances weren't what dictated that joy. Closeness to Jesus is what happened for him. And same with Peter. Peter. And Paul and faithful saints since that time, they could be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. No matter their circumstances, they could figure out how to rejoice because it wasn't circumstantial first. Their joy wasn't primarily circumstantial, it was primarily relational, in relation to God and with His Son, Jesus. And we can have joy like that, that isn't dependent upon our circumstances but we can only have it in relation to Jesus. Our joy can be always. We can rejoice always because Jesus is our joy and Jesus is our prize. And if he is our joy and he is our prize, then it's going to be okay and we can have joy because he's fine. And we, we know that he's this good shepherd of John 10, like he's fine and he holds us so that no one can snatch us out of his hand. So our joy can be intact no matter the circumstances because whatever those circumstances are, they're in his hand. And He's a really good shepherd. Their joy wasn't circumstantial and we can have that same kind of joy. This is why he writes that they might know, that they might believe in the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 13, they might believe in the Son of God that they might have this assurance, that's vital because their joy is found in them knowing and loving and being in relationship with Jesus. Assurance, as one Puritan said, is, is heaven on earth because when you have that vital relationship with Jesus, then all of a sudden you can have joy no matter what. You can rejoice always. So if you're lacking joy, the first question perhaps to ask is, is God my joy? Is he actually the source of my joy? Or am I trying to supplement that or find it outside of him? We need to look into our fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We need to work on life with God if we're lacking joy. And when we do that, when we start working on fellowship with God, life with God, we need to prepare our hearts to turn away from sin that we find and turn to the living God. Draw near to Him through His Son, Jesus. 
and let him do work in our hearts and our life. Listen to him by reading his word and submitting ourselves underneath it, speaking to him through prayer and asking him questions and looking to the word to help us respond rightly. We can draw near to him. He is the source of joy. So if you're lacking joy, I would say go to the source and let him deal with it. He can handle it. But if joy is lacking, working on fellowship with God is not the only place to do work. Hopefully you're, you're, you're getting like alarm bells in your head about some of the stuff we said last week. Like, hey, you said fellowship with God is on this parallel track with fellowship with others. So if we're going to work on joy, we need to be fair here, and we need to work on fellowships, right? Fellowship with God that's with the Son and with us, that is with other believers. And I think that's exactly right, that the fellowship that's spoken of in verse 3, a fellowship that's with other believers and with the Father and with the Son, is this kind of fellowship is what leads to the verse for joy, so fellowship with us and with the Father and His Son are what lead to joy, not just one or the other. Fellowship with God runs on this parallel track with fellowship with others. So when you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with others. And so that fellowship that you have with God and with others runs in and flows into your joy. So if you're lacking joy, work on that fellowship. That is with the Father and with His people. Those are tied together and our joy is tied to them. One pastor says this, I think rightly so, fellowship with Jesus shared with others is essential to fullness of joy. Fullness of joy is not some sort of solo adventure for you. You're not on a joy journey on your own. Well, maybe you are, and you you should turn from that because that's not the journey that will lead you to fullness of joy. The journey of fullness of joy is a journey with others, with other believers. Fellowship with Jesus, with others, is essential to fullness of joy. Perhaps your joy is lacking because you're not walking in fellowship with other believers, that no one really knows you, that you're not sharing life with other believers. That is essential for our joy. So if you're struggling with joy, work on your fellowship with God, hearing from Him in His Word, speaking to Him through prayer, but also go here. Work on relationships with other believers. This is tied to your joy. So if you're struggling with joy, tell somebody. Yeah, take it to God and let Him deal with it. And one of the ways that God deals with it most often is through other people. Tell someone, I'm struggling with joy. Would you please pray for me? Would you help me walk through this and live life with them? Walk it out with them. Let them join you and you both together fight for joy. One author said that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Or another, at home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. Let's just stop right there, right? Like, We are to seek joy and work on joy and fellowship with God, but have you read the word and been cold afterwards, your heart cold? Have you prayed and still felt no warmth in your heart? Here's something you can do. In the church, when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled and in my heart, and it breaks its way through. I have often read the word and felt like, oh, that's nice. Pray, like, great supposed to do those things, that's good, and just kind of robotically went about my day, and then I'll walk into here somewhat cold, and God will just light me up, not in a bad way, not like he's Light me up with the praises of the people who are shouting in faith that we believe that his joy is actually in our laughter, that his comfort is in our grief, that he actually loves us with this overwhelming love, that he is our true source of delight, and that we can turn to him and find that delight. Sometimes I'm not there, and yet together I get there. That's the way God made us. Fellowship with God that is a fellowship with others. That, that's the source. That's the fuel for our joy, for our fullness of joy. And so if you are lacking joy in any capacity, here's where you need to work. You need to work on fellowship with God, and that fellowship is a fellowship with believers. Work on that. I know it's hard. And we talk about this. Crazy uncles are everywhere, and we are the crazy uncle. And, and let's be fair. Pastor Jim told me, like, let's be fair. There's crazy ants out there, too. There are, right? Like, <laughs> 
crazy ants, and you're the crazy ant too. Like, I know it's hard, and there are wounds and scars, but I'm just getting what God has given as here's where fullness of joy comes from. It's not found on your own. It's in relationship. And yeah, it's going to be hard, but his joy can be in the midst of that too. So now, have, have we just solved our joy problem? You're welcome, right? Joy solved. No, we didn't do that. We know that that's not true. We live in a fallen world as fallen people. We haven't solved the issue of joy. But here's my fear. My fear is that many of you will agree with every single thing that we've even said here this morning and still not receive joy. Still not feel it. And I just have a a few suggestions. The first one is that joy is a command. God didn't say consider it. He didn't say if you get time for it. He commanded it. So I guess what I'm saying is this is some sense a posture before God of saying, I want to submit wholly to God and his commands. Because he's good, and all of his commands are good. So if I'm not feeling it, God told me. I want to obey it. So I submit myself to God. Now, of course, we know that doesn't fix everything either. Because joy is, this is number two, right? First is he commanded. Number two is, joy is an experience. It's an affection. It is a feeling and an emotion. It's, it's more than that, but it's not less. And so in a sense, it's this subjective experience or feeling, if you will, of, of gladness. And, and you can't just do that, right? You can't just make yourself delight. So what do we do then, right? It's a command. We're to obey it. We want to submit ourselves to God, and, and he says to do this. I'm, I'm going to put myself under him. So what do I do when it's this subjective experience? Well, I think our role is to submit to his command and set our heart to obey all that he's commanded. And one of his commands is delight yourself in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. And then what we need to do is get ourselves in the pathway of his grace. Jonathan Edwards talked about it as putting ourselves, laying ourselves in the path of allurement. We can't force joy, but it is our responsibility as those who want to submit ourselves to God to put ourselves in its path, to put ourselves and lay ourselves down in submission to God in the path of allurement. And the path of allurement is to say that God is the one who's going to draw that out. God is the one who's going to be the source and the object of our joy. And so we're going to let him do that work on our hearts by laying ourselves in the path of his allurement. So here's the path of allurement. It's to place yourself in the hearing of God's voice. That is, open up the word and just start reading it. Listen to it. This is part of the path of allurement. What we're doing here is opening up God's word, listening to it, hearing it explained. Put yourself in that path. Talk to God. You have the ear of God, right? So speak to him. Tell him what's going on. He knows. He understands. He can meet you in the middle of that. You have his ear. He wants to listen to you. Do you remember in John 15 about all those ways he talks about joy, but he also talks that you're going to ask things in my name? Like he wants that to be part of the process. So we have the ear of God. We need to put ourselves in that pathway of grace and pray. God, I need joy. Help me. Or the Psalms say that often. I'm in despair. Tell it to God. You have his ear. But here's the last one that you should see coming. Because we talked about these fellowships, fellowship with God is a fellowship with us. Put yourself in community. Lay yourself down in that pathway of God's grace. Be known and know others. Live life with others. And if you put yourself in these pathways... Let's see if that doesn't help with your joy. There might be more that needs to be said, but certainly start there. Because here's what we know about that. When we lay ourselves in the path of allurement is that God wants our joy. He's already told us. He's shown us. He commands it from us. He wants our joy. So when we lay ourselves on that path, we're actually working with what God wants for our lives. When we want joy, we're working with what God wants for us. Like our pursuit of joy and our pursuit of God aren't separate pursuits. They are one pursuit for the source of joy in God. So we need to know that God wants it, that he is working for it, that he has actually provided for it in Jesus, and that he still holds it out for us in the gospel.
Joy points us onward too. Points us forward. If fullness of joy is found in fellowship with God and with others, then we know in the back of our minds, like, we're not going to get fullness here, will we? Probably not. Not perfect relationship with the Father, not perfect relationship with one another is going to be experienced here. So this fullness of joy, it points us onward. There's all sorts of joy to experience here. We're going to keep going further up and further into that joy as we keep walking with the Father and with His people. But the joy that we were made for will not be yet. But it will be soon. One day we're going to, John says this in chapter 3, verse 2, we're going to see Him as He is. And we're going to become like Him. And we're going to be restored to perfect relation with Him. And that day will not be a day where it's just us and God. That day is a day that we will be made like him, and we will be made like him. We will be together. Those who have trusted in Christ will be this community of people who are in perfect fellowship with the Father, and together we will experience fullness of joy in relationship to the Father. He's going to be our God. We're going to be his, not person, people. We're going to do it together. That's what we're looking forward to in joy. We can experience a taste of that now, and we can grow in it, go further in, further up into this joy, but soon it will be ours in full because Jesus secured it in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He secured it for us. It's ours in him. And we look forward to that day. And one of the ways we look forward to that day is by taking a meal that's a preview of that day right now. It is a taste of joy of the joy we're going to have later. It is a taste of heaven that we will experience later. And we get it right now on this earth. So if you are in Christ, if he is the word of life for you, eternal life for you, you are trusting and depending upon him for your very life, then this meal is for you. It's a meal of joy because it's a foretaste of the joy that we will one day have. So come forward in joy and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf and do it looking forward to that day when he's going to make it perfect completely and fully. If you're not a believer, please don't take this meal. It's okay to stay seated. We want you to take Jesus and know him as the word of life and depend fully on him, trusting in him. You don't know what that looks like? Find another believer and say, tell me about the word of life. Talk to us. We'd love to share. But don't share this meal. It's a family meal. We we want you to share in Jesus first. So let's bow as we prepare for this meal together. Let's pray. God, you created us to walk with you and to know you and to love you and obey your word because it's good for us and we are all born broken, not in right relationship with you. And there are some in this room today who can't even begin to have the joy that we're talking about can't even begin to fight for it or receive it from you because they have not been restored to right relationship with you because they're still in their sin, they're living, uh, as some of our parents said, as if they are little gods. And that is a life that is broken. It is a life that does not bless, and we know it. And God, so I pray for those today who do not know you, that they would begin to, even now, that you would lift the veil off of their eyes and that they would see themselves as both broken and worthy of your wrath, but also as deeply loved. And as people for whom, Jesus, you came into this world to die, to suffer, to be mocked and ridiculed, so that they might have joy and might even understand, Jesus, the love that you have With your heavenly Father, you have that same love for us, God. Will you break hearts today, Lord, and open up eyes and draw people to yourself. Let them surrender, turn from their sin, and put their trust in you. And God, you know the rest of our hearts, uh, all of of us in this room who are your kids, we are your sons, and we are your daughters, but we are foolish, We seek our joy 
in things that we know are broken cisterns, things that we know won't satisfy us. We heard a whole list of them today from your word. Um, I pray that we would hear, that we would respond, and that we would put things down. So many things that don't satisfy, and we are, like one of your saints said, we're like little kids content to be in an alley making mud pies when someone's invited us to a holiday at the beach. You are full of pleasures evermore. God, let us press into you in your word. Let us hear your voice in prayer. I pray that we would pray without ceasing, that we would always be crying out to you, even if it's an agonized prayer that says, this stinks, I hate it, I can't handle this, will you help me? You promised to be my joy. Where are you at? You hear that prayer, and you delight to answer it. You want us to long for you and to yearn for you, Jesus. So I pray we would remember that we have your ear and you are our loving Father and you want to give us good gifts, including the gift of joy. And I pray, God, that you would help us learn to press into our brothers and sisters and that we would let your body be a means to propel us into further joy. I pray that we would not bear our burdens alone, I pray that we would rebuke one another when we sin, that we would encourage each other when our hearts are sagging. You want to do so much in us, God, through one another. And so I pray uh, for those who are holding your body at arm's length, that they would put down their arms and embrace your people and start to learn what it means to live life together because to live life with you is to live life together. God, thank you so much for giving us the body of Christ. I'm so thankful for the way your people love me and pray for me and bless me and correct me. We need you and we need each other. Jesus, thank you for giving your physical body so that we don't have to be crushed for our iniquities, so that we don't have to be cast into hell because we have offended an eternally holy God with our parading around as if we're God. Jesus, you took the punishment that we deserve, and so we eat bread today, and we drink the wine, and we remember that you shed blood for us. You gave your body for us. Yes, you are holy, you are righteous, you will judge all sin, and you are loving. And you provided for us a way, the only way to avoid judgment. We praise you for that, Jesus. That's where our joy begins. We deserve punishment. You give us yourself. And you give us yourself eternally. We rejoice in you and in your good news today, Jesus. Amen.